What about now? All right. I, uh, if you didn't hear me before, thank you for singing. That was beautiful. It was a beautiful song accompanied by beautiful voices lifting words of praise and adulation up to our God and Savior. So two, uh, a couple orders of housekeeping. Uh, There is a new bulletin out in the foyer. In it, you'll find uh, uh, some announcements of some upcoming things, such as uh, the ladies group starting on January 20th. Uh, I believe that's uh, Wednesday. And uh, the ladies are going to be going through the sequel to the last book, this one being In His Likeness. The men's group will start... uh, on Thursday, February 4th, and we're going through uh, a book that should be arriving this week called Expository Parenting. So if you have kiddos in the home, dads, I, I encourage you, I implore you to uh, participate in this study. You will benefit from it. I know I will. Um, let's see. Uh, and if, if, you could, if we could take a minute and pray for our brother, Eric Carlson. He is... Uh, about sometime next week, he'll be starting seven weeks of getting radiation treatment. Um, he's going to be getting it daily. So if we can take a, a moment, um, I'll, I'll give you a minute. And then um, if you will join me in corporate prayers, we lift up Eric before the Lord. Father, we take comfort knowing that what your word says in Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14, that you have compassion on those who fear you, and that you are, that you know our frame, and that you are mindful that we are just dust. You are acquainted with our limitations. You know how far we can go, and you know when we will give out. You know what we are capable of, and you know what we are not. And your word says, your word comforts us in saying you have compassion on us. You supply our needs, you salve our wounds. You settle our hearts. You shepherd us and take care of us like a faithful shepherd taking care of a flock which he values. Lord, we lift up our brother Eric and ask that you would grant him and Kelly peace, peace that transcends understanding, peace that is that, that seems foolish to the world. I pray that you would guard their hearts and minds. I pray that we we pray and, and ask and implore for healing upon his frame. And above all, Lord, we ask that your will be done, that 
as as he suffers over the next few weeks and as he as his, the treatment is going through his body we pray that the that the unique opportunities that you have for him in this suffering that you would help him to do what to do the good works that you have prepared for him and for Kelly to do in these unique circumstances we take comfort knowing that our suffering is not futile it is not mere happenstance the things that the good works that we are to walk in have been appointed since before the foundation of the earth what great comfort we have knowing that our afflictions and that our suffering is not just something that just happens keep them keep their hearts grounded in faith grounded in grounded in your goodness grounded in your kindness and in your love for them lord we love them as well and we entrust them to you amen and the same goes for anyone in our congregation who is suffering and if there's a way that we can pray for you i would implore you let us know you can text me you can call me you can pull me aside after service you can email me it would be my honor it would be charlie's honor to know how we can pray for you and lift you up before our great and kind lord Deuteronomy 18 and there there's two other issues of housekeeping and they both have to do with my blunders uh, a couple weeks ago I said something about the Mormons not, uh, believing that Jesus was still on the cross or something and that's not what they believe I have no idea why I said that um, I believe uh, Islam teaches that he wasn't crucified at all that a that a, a, a lookalike was but I have no idea why I say that, so I retract what I said in the moment. The other one was last week when we read Deuteronomy 17. I said that there was a uh, there was a foreshadowing of the Lord's incarnation, and it wasn't in that chapter. It was in our chapter today, and so I humbly confess my blunders. I ask for your forgiveness, and I want to repeat what I said last week. Look. See if you can spot the foreshadowing of our Lord's incarnation in this text. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 22. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. These are all things that the pagan nations were doing. For whoever does these things is detestable, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. And But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Hint, hint, hint. From among 
you from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that what, whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Let's pray. Lord, you did, you you sent many prophets. But there was one prophet who stood above them. He didn't just repeat the words that you had given him. He had the very word of God on his tongue and in his mouth because as the rest of Scripture explains to us, he is God in the flesh. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not just a prophet. He is the prophet who was to come and he has come and he has given us his blessed and his true and his trustworthy word father may we ever believe and lean wholly upon the words of your son jesus christ amen now turn to ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians chapter 4. The Worthy Walk, part 1. I don't have a PowerPoint for you today, and that's okay because we're only going to get through one verse anyway, so it's going to be really hard to get lost. The Worthy Walk, part 1. What is a child's most fundamental and first learned question. What is it? Why? Why should I do this? Why, why do I have to do that? Paul has anticipated why. Before he has told you to do anything, he has dedicated the first half of his letter and he has given us three full bristling full chapters describing our calling as Christians. And him having described it, and we knowing our calling and knowing what it means to be a Christian, knowing what it is, all that it is that God, or or rather some of what God has done for us, and knowing some of the riches of his grace and his kindness that has been made known towards us, knowing something of the 
of the width and the breadth and the height and the depth of his unfathomable love for those that he has adopted and that he has made his own children. Knowing what it means to biblically, knowing what it means biblically to be saved provides more than an adequate explanation as to the why why we ought to follow, why we ought to heed, why we ought to apply whatever the Lord's apostle has to say to the Lord's people in the church. And what does he have for the church? Well, he has our marching orders. He has our marching orders. And really the 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 rest of the chapter, the the rest of the book, chapters four through six, contain an exposition on our marching orders. In chapter four, we will see our marching orders in the church. In chapter five, we will see our marching orders in the family, and that actually goes leads bleeds into chapter six. And then we'll there we'll also see our marching orders in society and the world at large. But here. Uh, in this unit, which we're not going to finish today, in verse 1, we are told to walk worthy of our calling. Walk worthy of our calling. In verses 2 to 3, Paul defines and he explains and elaborates what he means. He describes what is a worthy walk like? What are its characteristics? And then in verses 4 to 6, he tells us what is the cause or the, or the basis or the grounds for this worthy life. The calling, the characteristics, and the cause. And, and as I have warned you, we are only looking at the calling today. But let's read it in its, in its entirety. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, let's examine the call, the calling of the worthy life. Paul begins verse 1 with a therefore. And that therefore points back to everything Paul has said in chapters 1 to 3. Everything about your and mine great calling in Christ Jesus. And Later on, we're going to take a minute and we're going to unfold this summary. We're going to uh, uh, summarize everything that is folded up inside this therefore. But ju- just for now, what you have to see, what you have to understand is that in Paul's flow of the argument, in chapters 1 through 3, he has front-loaded the grounds, the the why for our obedience and for a positive response for a response with sincerity, for a response with eagerness, for a response not just with acceptance but with oomph behind it towards what the imperatives that he gives in the second half of the book. 
And before we even examine what Paul tells us to do, before we even examine the summary exhortation in verse 1, there's something I would say is fundamentally crucial about the t- about what Paul calls us to do and that's that's found up in this therefore and that and that's the scriptures shall we say the pr- scriptures prerogative the scriptures right to tell us what to do this is fundamentally crucial this is so vitally important for us to look at the scriptures right to tell us what to do now we agreed several months back that all theology has implications god's truth doesn't exist in a vacuum truth exists in a context and truth needs to be applied and we can't be content to allow truth in our in our minds to exist in a vacuum meaning it's not good enough for good doctrine to merely be taught and assented to it's not enough to assent truth it's not enough that truth just be proclaimed truth needs to be received it needs to be implanted in the heart it needs to have its roots go down into the very fabric of its of your life so that its fruit can be born in your application of said truth doctrine needs to be followed by application what we believe needs to affect and influence our behavior and this is again this is this is crucial this is this is uh, utterly foundational to christian truth christian christianity is not a religion of feelings your position in christ needs to affect your practice in christ uh, one person has said it this way your doctrine needs to define your duty your wealth in Christ needs to influence your walk in Christ your calling needs to influence your conduct your exposition of scripture needs to lead to an exhortation upon your life don't be the man don't be the woman who is content to hear of God's tender mercies in saving you only then in the same breath to be offended that God would have the gall to place demands and expectations on your life. Now what Paul is doing here in laying down doctrine and then making this bridge in, in, in linking it to a consequential and appropriate duty and application, he, he does elsewhere. This is not something novel. This is not something unique to Paul. He does it in most if not all of his letters, maybe not in Philemon. Uh, some of the more well-known ones is, is Romans 12.1. After 11 rich chapters of doctrine, Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In Galatians, 
after four chapters of doctrine. Galatians 5.1 says, Therefore, keep standing firm. You lay down the doctrine, and then out of that doctrine flows an application. In Colossians, he spends two chapters exalting Christ, explaining the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, which you have, therefore, keep seeking the things above. Doctrine leads to duty. And what these verses spell out, what the therefore in verse 1 And really what every therefore in Scripture so plainly spells out for us is that we must see the authority and we must see the good intention and the rightful prerogative of Scripture to place expectations on us and to tell us what we are to be doing and what we are not to be doing. Every imperative, every command, every instruction and inference and implication and application in Scripture is good and right and appropriate and proper and beneficial and fit for us to hear and to receive and to follow and to obey it. 2 Timothy 3.16 places this unique qualification upon scripture all scripture is theonoustos inspired by god breathed out sourced out by god or sourced out in god rather and profitable being theonoustos being inspired of god it alone is uniquely profitable for teaching for reproof what's reproof that is addressing or pointing out error for correction that is respond uh, uh, setting things in in right order after the error has been pointed out and for training in righteousness scripture is uniquely qualified I mean, there's a lot of beneficial and wise things that you can find out there. Scripture is uniquely qualified for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It's in a class of its own. Second Peter one nineteen says, "We have the more sure prophetic word." And, and look what he look what he puts in here. This uh, this appeal to which you would do well. You would be wise. It would be good for you. It would be smart for you to pay attention to this more sure prophetic word as you would to a lamp shining in a dark place. Has anyone ever gone hiking and and been on the wrong side of the mountain when the sun goes down and it gets dark super mega fast? One time I was hiking in Lake Berryessa in Northern California and like I said, the sun went down super mega fast and I had to use my old uh, Nokia something. It wasn't even a flip phone. And I had to use this very dim green hue as a light and you better believe I was paying careful attention to that green hue to see where I was going to get down off that trail. Scripture says you would do well to pay attention to the more sure prophetic word. 
Aaron, that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Well, I'm glad you asked. I don't have time to read it, but what the Old Testament, I mean, and, and, and you got some of it this morning in Deuteronomy um, 18. Psalm 19, 7 to 4, and Psalm 119, I think, are the clearest examples of the Old Testament placing Scripture in a category of its own and how utterly good and necessary it is for the people of God to stand upon it and to heed its words. I think if you study Psalm 19, Psalm 119, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and First Peter, 2 Peter um, 1, 20 and 21, I think you will have a very high view of Scripture. And by now, some of you, I'm sure, are looking at your watch and wondering, you know, it's only, how far has he been going? And we're, we're, we're not even, we're only on one word in the text. Why is Pastor making such a big stink about this? Anyone doing that? I'm glad you're not. Why is Pastor making such a big stink about this? Why is he going on and on about duty and responsibility and the right response for Scripture? Well, let me ask you something. Who, who doesn't know someone who has said, I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer. I went to church as a kid. I went to Christian private school. I went to church camp. I went to a Christian concert. And you know what? I heard someone talking about Jesus. And they told me to pray this prayer. And well, I prayed the prayer. And so I'm a Christian. And now that I've asked Jesus into my heart, now I can go on and I can live the way I want to live. And while professing to be a Christian, they, they live a life of unbroken, unrepentant sin and their actions and their behavior show that they couldn't care less about what God's expectations and demands upon their life are. And they seem indifferent. They seem apathetic. They may even seem antagonistic and hostile toward a committed and involved participation in the local church body. And their Bible has so much dust on the cover that you could write your, their name on it with your finger. Anybody know somebody like that? And the, the sad irony is, a terrible, terrible, tragic irony is, is that person has been taught by more than one Bible teacher by pastors in large churches who've written books and appeared on radio programs and podcasts and appeared on, on television, they have been told, that, rather this individual has been told by such terrible preaching and teaching to think that he's saved and that nobody has the right to question that. Scripture, an examination of Scripture I, I, I place before you, would say otherwise. James 2.17 says that faith without works is dead. Faith. A f the faith that doesn't do anything. Faith that just sits there like a limp fish. Faith that produces 
nothing. Faith that yields no fruit, no change whatsoever. James says that kind of faith is useless. It doesn't do anything. It's dead. Or Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Jesus is speaking to people who are following him. Remember, Remember, for the first several years of his public ministry, there were throngs of people who wanted to follow Jesus and be his disciples and who called him Lord. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? That's emphatic. This is He's talking about church people. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you make a big stink about calling me Lord? Why do you emphasize my Lordship and then turn around and not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord in name only? Why do your actions, why does your life not back that up? 1 John 2.4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Study of these passages show that there's a There's a natural, there's an organic connection between the saved person and the Word of God. There's a natural, organic response to what God has said, to the truth He has revealed. To the born-again person, the Word at first is like milk to him. He loves it. He's responsive to it. He's... You could say he is catalyzed by it and his thoughts and his pattern and his behavior are formed by it and he's nourished by it. He grows by it. Second Timothy 3.17 says that he is completed and thoroughly equipped for every good work by it. For the regenerated person, for the born-again person, it says... There is, a, as one pastor says, an unbroken link between the change in one's heart to the way he now begins to live. And this is a long quote, so, so make sure you get this. There is an unbroken link between the change in one's heart to the way that he now begins to live. Unbroken link. If there's a change in the heart, it will come out in what that person does. Let me continue the quote. What shapes his affection and behavior is determined by the act of God in saving him and by what he begins to understand biblical truth to be. And here's this, here's a warning. Anyone who is content to ignore the demands of scripture on his daily life is simply declaring that he has never been born again to begin with. And again, I repeat the Lord's own words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? When a man's life contradicts what he says he believes, the testimony of his walk speaks louder than the testimony of his mouth. It's been said that actions speak louder than words. I would say that your walk speaks louder than your words. And surely someone's wondering, Aaron, is God expecting perfection from me? No. Does 
Do, do, do legitimate Christians slip and err and sin? Yes. We live in a Romans 7 world. 1 John 1.8 says that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Same chapter, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So yes, the legitimate, born-again, regenerate, new creation kind of person still slips and he errs and he sins. But the slips and the errors and the sins are the exception. They are not the pattern to the believer's life. Absolute perfection doesn't come until glory. But there is a bent towards holiness. There is a bent towards holiness. There is, where there was not before, there is an impulse towards holiness. There is fruit where previously it was nowhere to be found. Now you can find fruit. It may be as small as a guava seed, but you can find it. And where there used to be a revulsion towards the authority and the commands of Scripture and fellowship with the saints, the born-again person likes He's now drawn to and he eventually learns to embrace these things. And he learns to embrace the imperatives and the applications of Scripture in light of the great grace, in light of the great mercy and tender kindness shown to him in Christ. Because Christ is so worthy of being obeyed and because he loves Christ, he obeys and he follows Christ. Now, as we get into chapters four and six, which, which, as I said, is basically a full exposition of this worthy life, of this worthy walk, it's so fundamentally important that we keep front center of our mind why we are obeying Scripture. Why are you obeying Scripture? Why? I mean, ask yourself, really? Why are you here? Why are you pursuing the worthy life? I mean, it is costly, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it painful? Isn't it inconvenient sometimes? In our flesh, wouldn't we rather not sometimes? Why? Why pursue it and sacrifice greatly for it? Why, why expend our time and our energy and our resources? Why sacrifice so much? Why even sacrifice our, sacrifice our lives if necessary? We don't do it so that we might be saved. We do it because we have been saved. We don't pursue God. We don't pursue righteousness. We don't pursue holiness so that God might be gracious. That's the flesh trying to earn grace by works. 
We pursue our Lord. We pursue obedience. We pursue righteousness. We pursue holiness. We put off the old man daily because we have been shown grace, because of what God has already done. And I suggest, I want to lay before you with, with, a, with a heart of full sobriety and seriousness that if you, if you struggle, if you struggle to embrace and to apply the, the applications of Scripture, and if your prevailing pattern, if your overall trajectory is not towards a uh, a sincere and a heartfelt obedience to what the scripture tells us to do and if what if what scripture tells us to do is offensive to you and if it's inconvenient and if it makes you angry if you don't have this bent that I that I talked about if you don't have this impulse it may be, my friend, it may be that you haven't yet come to heed and to believe the first half of the letter of Ephesians. And so I would place before you the call. Are you standing in faith? Have you bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to earn your way to heaven? Are you trying to earn your way? Are you trying to merit? Are you trying are you trying to fool other people? Are you trying to fool God? Are you trying to fool yourself? Or with sincerity and full conviction, do you stand in grace because of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on behalf of you for your sin? Now let's let's move on. Verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul calls himself a prisoner of the Lord, and we're reminded that he is chained as he writes this letter. He's chained to a Roman guard. And from one perspective, from an earthly perspective, he is a prisoner of the Roman state. But Paul doesn't describe himself that way. He doesn't see himself as a prisoner of the Roman state. He sees himself as a prisoner held captive to a far greater, a far more amazing and captivating authority. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so much about his low view of himself that I want to reserve for next week, since next week we'll be looking at the characteristics of the worthy walk, namely humility. So let's look at the call today and see what it is. He says, I implore you. I implore you. He could have said, I charge you. I I instruct you. I command you. I require this of you. He says, I implore you. This word doesn't have the authoritarian push the authoritarian force of of the other, of those other words that he could have used instruct or command this word 
means to urge, to exhort, to summon, or to call. It's actually the same root word as call. He, he uses the, the word twice in the rest of the verse. And it, it, it could be rendered like this. I call you. I call you to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And this is, this is the verbal form of the word uh, for paraclete in John 14, 6, which is translated comforter or helper. I, I urge you, I somberly and compassionately urge you, I exhort you, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, what has Paul already said about our calling? It is a great calling. It is a wondrous calling. It is a mighty calling. I urge you, I exhort you, my friend, please, in the words of Paul, I I beg you, I bid you, please walk worthy of that calling. That's that's what that's what Paul's saying here. And, he, and when he says to walk worthy, he's not talking about getting a pedometer and hey, be sure you get in ten thousand steps each day. Walk is a metaphor for how you live. And he's already used this in chapter two, verse two, when he said that you used to walk according to the course of this world. When you walked according to the course of this world, you lived a worldly life. Your patterns, your your trajectory, your habits, your custom, your values, everything you did on a daily basis was just like those in the world around you. Now he turns this around, puts a positive spin on it in 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that what? We might walk in them. And again, this is why I stress that the good works God has prepared for us to do and that he empowers us in aren't in the realm of the extraordinary. They're not in the realm of the unique callings like the heroes of the Bible. They are in our everyday circumstances. They're, in the, they're not in the realm of the extraordinary. They are in the realm of the ordinary and normal. The good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do can be found in a house mom taking care of her children and changing diapers. The good works which God has ordained and prepared his saints to work in can be found in a blue-collar dad going to his blue-collar job that he'd really rather not do, but it puts food on the table, puts clothes on his kids' backs, puts gas in the tank. The good works that you have been ordained for, or rather that have been ordained for you, can be found in your attendance in your local high school or college or your employment at your local Starbucks or as you sit around the dinner table with your brothers and sisters and with your mom and your dad. These good works are found in the family. They are found in the local church. They are found in you and in your local community 
in your common, everyday circumstances, not in the realm of the extraordinary. Now, this theme of walking comes up again several times in the second half, so we're going to save that word for further discussion. But the idea is this. Paul's idea is this. His, Paul is calling you Christian, and he's calling me to live our lives in a manner and in a pattern and in a trajectory that is worthy of the graces and the blessings that our Heavenly Father has lavished upon us. In our remaining time, I want to focus on this word worthy so that we can, under, we can fully understand what Paul's saying here. Worthy. Worthy was a word used with the balancing of scales. Uh, one side of the scale would be, would be a, a predetermined or a, a, a known weight, a reliable weight, whether it was uh, a half a kilogram, a kilogram, five kilograms, or you know, maybe in the Bible it would have been um, like a shekel or a half a talent or something like that. But you knew how much it weighed. And that's on, that's on one plate on one side of the scale. And then on the other side, you would put something that you were testing. Maybe something that you wanted to buy. And if the thing that is known and the thing that are unknown, if they balance, if they are of equal weight, then the thing that is being tested, the thing in question was said to be worthy. It was, it is balanced. It is as it should be. It is of the appropriate value, of the appropriate weight. And if, if the weights didn't balance and one was off, then you knew something's up and, and, and that thing in question was not worthy. Now, I have a, I have a mental exercise for you. Now, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture a scale. Now, for every blessing Paul has covered in the first half of the book, I want you to put a small little weight on one side of the scale in your mind. For every blessing, one small little weight. And I have a, I have a little auditory aid that is going to help you. Okay? And this is where we're going we're gonna to summarize all the blessings. I want you to start with the fact that the Father chose you before the foundation of the world. Before you ever did anything, God chose you to be saved. The scale sinks just a little bit with the weight that's been put on it. Another weight is added for being predestined to be adopted as a son, as an heir, not as a slave or a servant, but as an heir, as one who has the right to expect an inheritance. Scale sags down just a little bit more. Another one for being redeemed by the eternal Son of God who purchased you not with perishable things like gold or silver, silver, but with his precious blood. Add another one for his blood granting you the forgiveness of sins because 
like we sang this morning, our sins are many. Add another one for receiving the full disclosure of God's will towards us in the riches of his kindness. Add another one for being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul said as a, he said that he has given to us as a pledge that he will never lose you. He won't, won't allow anyone to take you or destroy you. And that what he began in you, he will finish to completion. That was like a multi-blessing. But the Holy Spirit's given to us as a pledge. Add another one for being made alive with Christ. Now add one for being raised up with Christ. Now add one for being seated in the heavenly places with Christ and being granted all of the privilege and the honor and the prestige that comes with with being seated with the king, not as a servant, but as a personal friend and as a favored child. Add another one for being saved by grace through faith and not by your works. Add another one for good works being prepared and ordained for you to walk in. Now just as a side note, how heavy is the scale getting in your mind? Is it sagging? Okay, let's add a few more. Add another one for being far off and completely separated from God and Christ and the people of God and the covenants and the promises and being without hope and then being brought near by Christ who overcame all of those obstacles for you. Now add another weight for Christ being your peace and breaking down the dividing wall and enmity that is found in the list of ordinances in the Mosaic law that you could never keep in your flesh. Now add another one for having access, for being given the privilege and the right to stand before the throne, to bring your prayers and to speak and to be heard. Add another one for being reconciled to all men and women who are likewise in Christ. Add another one for being a fellow citizen with all the saints and being able to stand shoulder to shoulder with men like Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah. Add another one for being made members of God's household. Add one for being made the corporate dwelling place of God in the spirit. Have an, add another one for the champion of Judaism, the man who would have been delighted to see people like you perish in Hades, to see to have him converted and be appointed and sent as the champion advocate for Gentiles, the Apostle Paul so that the gospel would be preached to Gentiles like you. Add another one for the assurance that God's power is at work and his eternal plan are behind all of your trials and your miserable circumstances. 
and the knowledge that when you suffer, it's never meaningless or futile. Add another one for the assurance of being strengthened with power, not in your muscles and not in, not in your flesh, but where it's truly needed, in your inner man. Add another weight for knowing the indescribable and inexhaustible love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If I'm going to throw it in, I've got to be sure to get it in. Add another weight for the blessings and the joys that come with being filled up with the fullness of God. Add another weight for the unimaginable power that God uses and brings to bear that exceeds far more abundantly than we can ever ask or imagine. Add another weight for the unending glory which he displays in the church and will display forever, which you and I and every saint will enjoy for countless billions and trillions and quadrillions of eternities. Now, with all those weights that you've put on that one side of the scale, how far down is the plate sagging? Paul implores you, not with the voice of an authoritarian, not as one who lords things over over those under him, but with a pastorly, with a fatherly, tender affection, he bids you, you simply can't go on living like nothing has happened. You need, my friend, you need to live a life that is in balance with everything that's on that plate. Your life needs to correspond to the blessings that God has put upon you. Now, what does that look like? What does that worthy life, worthy walk look like? Well, the long answer is the rest of the book chapters 4 through 6. The short answer, and the one I think you would appreciate, is verses 2 and 3, which we're going to look at next week, because my time is almost out. But I want to close with this. I hope, I hope that the weight, with all, that the scale with all those weights, I hope it was touching the floor. I, I hope it even made an imprint in the soil because it was so heavy. Here is where the new covenant outshines and outglories the old. I hope that you see, as we've been reading through the Pentateuch, I hope you can see that the old covenant was good. All the goodness, all the blessing that Israel got, they didn't deserve any of it. And what they got was good. What Christ has given his people is infinitely better. And this is why. The Old Covenant said, using the terms that we've just used this morning, the Old Covenant said, live a life worthy of God's blessings to you, and if you do that, you get to keep the blessings. You need to live a life comparable to the grace and to the blessing that God has already put on you in order for you to keep the blessings. If you do not live a life worthy of the blessings, you lose the blessings. 
the new covenant says that you have been provided a substitute who lived the worthy life for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse I hope everyone here knows. He made him who knew no sin. You could say, he made him who lived the worthy life to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the blessedness of the new covenant is this, is that if his righteousness, if his living worthily for you is credited to you, you will never lose it. And all the blessings given to you on his behalf will always be yours. Isn't that good? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided us a champion, a great high priest who has entered into the most holy place and he has forever sanctified and perfected those who are being saved because his perfect righteousness, his perfect worthiness is imputed to those who are not worthy to those who are not righteous. Their sin being imputed to Him which He paid for in full on the cross of Calvary. And that those whose sins are paid for and covered by the blood of this substitute, they are forever declared right. They are justified. Father, help us to love this grace that you have done on our behalf. And may we never be complacent over sin. May we walk in this newness of life. May may we pursue and run after and chase and, and grasp and seek after and desire and obtain the likeness of our Lord and Savior. Lord, grant us the strength to be like Him. Give us the heart to put away and to renounce and to put off our sin and to follow hard and follow long after our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.